praise you, Father. We praise you, Son. We praise you, Spirit. We give you but thine own. Everything that we have is a gift straight out of your gracious heart, and we offer it back to you for your good purposes in the world. We pray now that you would illumine us the reading and preaching of your word. Send down your spirit among us. Fill me and all of us that we would not just hear your word today, but that we would respond to it with obedience and with love. And we pray all of this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen. You can be seated. Our associate director of student ministry, Andrea, is going to read our scripture reading today from Ruth 2. You can find it in your bulletin. Ruth 2, 8 through 18. So Boaz said to Ruth, my daughter, listen to me. Don't go and glean in another field and don't go away from here. Stay here with the women who work for me. Watch the field where the men are harvesting and follow along after the women. I have told the men not to lay a hand on you. And whenever you are thirsty, go and get a drink from the water jars the men have filled. At this, she bowed down with her face to the ground. She asked him, why have I found such favor in your eyes that you notice me, a foreigner? Boaz replied, I've been told all about what you had done for your mother-in-law since the death of your husband, how you left your father and mother and your homeland and came to live with the people you did not know before. May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. May I continue to find favor in your eyes, my Lord, she said. You have put me at ease by speaking kindly to your servant, though I do not have the standing of one of your servants. At mealtime, Boaz said to her, come over here, have some bread, and dip it in the wine vinegar. When she sat down with the harvesters, he offered her some roasted grain. She ate all she wanted and had some left over. As she got up to go glean, Boaz gave orders to his men, let her gather among the sheaves and don't reprimand her. Even pull out some stalks for her from the bundles and leave them for her to pick up and don't rebuke her. So Ruth gleaned in the field until the evening. Then she threshed the barley she had gathered, and it amounted to about an ephah. She carried it back to town, and her mother-in-law saw how much she had gathered. Ruth also brought out and gave her what she had left over after she had eaten enough. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Andrea. Well, good morning, church. It's so great to see all of you here today. If you've not been with us at all this fall. We've been working our way through the book of Ruth, uh, looking at it through the lens of this theme of love without limits. And every week we're asking this question. So here we are in this world, in this society that is mainly marked, I think we would all agree, by increasing levels of suspicion and hatred and rage and division. And so we're asking the question, what would it mean for us as the people of God to be marked instead by love? And not just sort of wishy-washy love, love that is hesed love, this great theme of the book of Ruth, this Hebrew word that means God's never stopping, never failing, always promise-keeping and making that kind of love. What would it mean if we were people that were marked by that. And every Sunday this fall, we've been looking at different qualities of that love, what it would mean for us to be people like that. We've looked at how love suffers and love commits, love protects and love risks, love works and redeems. And today, being Faith Commitment Sunday, we're rewinding back a little bit uh, to chapter two 
looking at another wonderful quality of this love that emerges strongly in this text, and that is this, that love gives. Love gives. We're talking about generosity today, and I think a lot of us would like to think of ourselves as generous, giving people. I'd like to think of myself as a generous, giving person. But I actually, um, I, I had a lunch a couple weeks ago, actually with my brother here, Rob Cox, who's one of our elders, and Rob deeply challenged me to start thinking about my giving differently, and since then, I've been thinking deeply about this in my own life. I started studying some statistics that Rob shared with me that I wanted to share with you. So I think American Christians like to think of ourselves as generous people, but when you actually look at the statistics, it's pretty disappointing. The average American Christian family gives about 2.5% of their income, about 2.5%. Now compare that to the national average of charitable giving at 2.9%. So Christians are actually giving lower than the national average of charitable giving. Now, if you look at Christians who make more than $70,000 a year, that percentage actually drops down to 1%. The Christians who are making more than $70,000 a year only give away 1% of their income. Now, I'm not saying this to shame or give guilt to anyone. I promise you, I'm a parent. I have learned that shame and guilt do not work for behavior modification, or at least it only, only works very short term. The reason I'm sharing this with you is because I, I just want us to dream a little bit. I want us to dream a little bit as a community here. Do you know what would happen if every Christian in America decided, no matter how much they make, whether they make really little or, or a lot, if every Christian in America decided that they were going to attempt to give 10% of their income away. That's what the Old Testament calls the tithe. It's just sort of a, it's not a rule, especially for Christians. It's just kind of a basic standard that we shoot for. What if, what would happen if every Christian in America decided that they were going to give 10% away? Do you know what would happen? First of all, there would be an extra, hear me on this, $165 billion available every year for Christian ministry and mission purposes. $165 billion. Just to kind of put that in perspective, that kind of money, that would be money that could be used to end global hunger in one year, eliminate illiteracy, solve the world's water and sanitation crisis, and fund all overseas mission work, and still have about $80 billion left over. That's crazy stuff, right? I mean, this is crazy. And the reason I'm sharing this is because I want you to dream with me a little bit and reflect today on what happens when God's people decide to be radically and sacrificially generous, what we see throughout history and certainly what we see in this story that we just read is that God shows up and he does remarkable kingdom stuff. That's what we see in this story of Ruth. We see a couple of people deciding that they are going to give beyond measure, radically and generously, and we see God show up and do some crazy stuff. So let's, let's look at that story together, okay? To open, open your Bibles or pull out your text. We're going to be looking at this story. Now, if you've been here, you know how this story has gone so far. You know, it starts with Ruth and Naomi. Um, they, they, they moved to, or Naomi and her husband moved to Moab, and there her, daughter, her sons marry, but unfortunately her husband dies and her sons die. So she encounters this great, terrible poverty, and she and her daughter-in-law, Ruth, move back to Israel, hoping to find survival. They are these impoverished widows living on the knife's edge with no way to provide for themselves. So Ruth, we hear in the beginning of chapter two, goes out to glean. Now, let's talk a little bit about gleaning. Now, I know in your quiet time this morning, as you were reading Leviticus 19, 
as I'm sure many of you did, came across uh, what are called gleaning laws. Now, gleaning laws in the Old Testament, God gave to farmers, anyone who owned any land, that if you were a landowner or you were a farmer and you had a bunch of wheat or some kind of uh, crop, you were required to leave the edges and corners of your field unharvested, and that was for gleaners to come and collect what they could. It was almost like an early kind of welfare system for the poorest of the poor in Israel. Now, this was not a sufficient system for the poor. This would be basically like uh, people who collect tin cans or aluminum cans today to kind of eke out a survival. It was not really a way to take care of yourself or take care of a family. But nevertheless, this is what poor people in Israel were debased to do, glean these fields. Now, for, for Ruth, it was made even doubly difficult by the fact that she was a foreign woman, and so she was competing with all of the poor Israelites around her who would not have looked at this foreign gleaner favorably. So Ruth goes out. She just so happens to end up in this field of this generous landover, Boaz. Boaz shows up later in the day. He hears her story, and how does he respond when he hears this about this young woman widow who's working in his fields? He responds with an unbelievably radical generous heart. Look, look with me at the text to see what he does. Verse 8, he says to Ruth, stay in this field. Don't go from field to field. Just stay in this one. Now, if you can imagine all the fields back then, there were no highways or roads. They were all connected together. They were contiguous with each other. It's sort of like if you've ever been out to soccer fields uh, as a parent or kids, you've been out to soccer fields. It's just this huge, big expanse of green, but it's chopped up into contiguous fields next to each other. That's the way that the fields of Israel were. And so the, the poor would just glean along the edges of the field, and that was intentional so that no one landowner would be saddled with the full burden of the poor. You get what I'm saying? But Boaz, though, says to, to Ruth, no, 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 don't go to glean field to field. Don't go to any other field. I want you to stay just in my field because I want to bear the full burden of your poverty. I want to bear it whole. And then he says in verse 9, actually, why don't you go and join in with my own women who are working out in the center of the field because that stuff on the margins has just gotten all picked over. You know, my kids, Sarah and I took our girls up to Carter Mountain, uh, two weeks ago to pick apples and we were way too late and we were just kind of on the margins of the fields and there was just nothing. Those apples had been completely picked over. And so we had to go deep, deep into the apple orchards to find anything. And that's basically what he's saying here. He's saying, don't just stay in the margins where there's nothing. He says, I want you to go deep into the fields where no landowners would ever allow a gleaner to go. I want you to go in with my women and pick there. Then he says to verse nine, when you get thirsty, don't go off to a well and lose precious time in the field drawing your own water. I want you to go and drink the water of my men that they've already drawn. And then verse 14, he invites Ruth to come and sit at his table with his own household to eat bread and wine with them. And then verse 14, he offers her some roasted grain. Actually, the Hebrew literally says he piled up. So if you imagine, Ruth's like there, there with a shawl and he's like piling up this huge pile of roasted grain. And it says that Ruth ate until she was satisfied. Do you know how much roasted grain you have to eat to be satisfied? I mean, how much popcorn do you have to eat to be full? I mean, for me, it's like just 
plethoras of it, you know, like, like enormous amounts of popcorn. And yet she ate and all she wanted, it says, and there was still some left over. And then verse 15, he tells actually her to go with the men to work among them who are right in the heart of the fields. But then he says in verse 16, actually, men, here's what I want you to do. I want you to let this Moab widow, Moabite widow follow behind you. And I just want you to like pull out stalks and just lay them down. I want you to do the work for her. I mean, this is crazy. This is over the top generous. And then it gets to the point in verse 17 where she goes and she threshes out the barley, which means she sifted out the wheat from the chaff and she collects and weighs what she has. And it says at the end of the day, Ruth has to take home an ephah of wheat. And because all of you know what an ephah is, your minds are blown, right? (laughs) What is an ephah? Yes, exactly. What is an ephah? Um, so an average haul for a worker in the fields at that time would be one to two pounds. Ruth took home 30. 30 pounds a week. One day. Almost a month's wages. I don't even know how this lady got home. But this, this is showing the extraordinary. Some would say, forgive me for saying this word, but stupid degree of generosity that this landowner demonstrates to this woman. He goes far beyond anything that the gleaning laws ever intended. He blasts past Levitical rules, and he gives stupidly, radically, extravagantly, generously, over the top in ways that cost him his own personal financial gain. Why does he do this? Because he knows the grace of Yahweh, the Lord, for him. And because of his act of generosity, it's like it breaks open this dam. An amazing grace starts flooding into this community. Because of his act of generosity, look what happens. Two widows are saved from poverty. A family is rescued from extinction. Generational heritage is preserved. A man's name is redeemed. A baby boy is born. The lineage of David is preserved. The Messiah is ultimately come into the world. The whole world is redeemed all because of the act of one man with a generous heart for a foreign widow. That's the crazy stuff that God does when his people show radically generous hearts. And I want to see that. I really want to see that. I want to see that happen in my lifetime. I want to see that kind of grace break open. And I think we can. But what would it mean? What would it mean for us to be people like that, who give like that? Well, let me just draw out a couple of lessons. I think for us to become people who have this kind of generous hearts. First, I think it means that we've got to really rest and trust in God's provision. You know, in this story, we see God abundantly providing for somebody who's really poor, generously providing in the face of great scarcity. You know, in the beginning of the book, Moab, I mean, uh, Naomi and Ruth have got nothing. They're on the edge of starvation. By the end of chapter two, they're rolling in wheat. I mean, they've got too much of it. They don't even know what to do with it. And so there's there's a theme here that the narrator is trying to convey to you, and that is with the Lord. There's always abundance. Even in the face of seeming scarcity with the Lord, there's excess, there's surplus, there's abundance. There's always enough. If you belong to the Lord, do you believe this, friends? If you belong to the Lord, there's always enough. 
There's not just enough, there's excess, surplus. Contrast that, you know, what's sad is that we live in the wealthiest society in the world, maybe in history, and yet all of us are infected by what sociologists call the myth of scarcity. We're all infected by this idea that we never have enough, that we always need more in order to make ends meet. I mean, it actually doesn't matter how much you make or how much you have, because honestly, look, there's always gonna be somebody who makes more than you. There's always somebody who's wealthier. There's always somebody who, who has a better car. There's always someone who drives a better, who lives in a better neighborhood. There's always gonna be somebody, there's always things that you want and need that you can't buy. You're never going to have enough savings for college. You're never going to have enough savings for retirement. You're never going to have enough that you want to pass down to your children. And then the entire advertising industry and everything that we take in on a daily basis is sort of committed to convince you that you are a person who profoundly lacks, who lacks all that you need. No, nobody, very few people feel rich. Everybody just kind of feels like they're getting by, even though... If you make more than $34,000 a year, friends, listen, if you make more than $34,000 a year, that's most of you here, you are in the top 1% of earners in the world. You're the 1%. And yet we're all bought into this myth of scarcity, that we just don't have enough. And it fills us with fear. Walter Brueggemann, um, the Old Testament scholar, told this story about his neighbor. He was talking to his neighbor one day. She, had, she was a young parent. She had a little four-year-old son. And she was deeply anxious. She was fretting. He said, why? What's, what's wrong? She said, well, I'm fretting because if I don't get my son into the right preschool, then he won't get into the right prep school. They live down in North Carolina. She said, if he doesn't get into the right prep school, then he won't get into Davidson College. And if he doesn't get into Davidson College, he won't be able to get to know the sons of the bankers in Charlotte. And if he doesn't get to know the bankers from Charlotte, then he won't get a job in the finance industry. And if he doesn't get a job in the finance industry, they won't have enough money. And if he doesn't have enough money, he won't be able to take care of me. <laughs> she, she was terrified of this. Her poor little four-year-old son, right? And, that's, and it's a little bit extreme, but it shows how powerful that myth of scarcity is. And it's a, it's a myth that fills us with fear because we believe that it's up to me to provide for myself. It's up to me to secure my own future and the future of my children, and it's up to me to take care of the needs that there are in my life. And over against that myth of scarcity that fills us with fear, we have over and over again in the Bible this promise of provision, this promise that we hear, we get, God says, I will give you what you need. When you're in the desert, I will give you manna. When you're in scarcity, I will give you wheat. When you find yourself in places of barrenness, I will supply you with all that your life requires. Jesus himself says, why do you worry about your life? Any of you worry? Jesus says, why do you worry about your life, what you will eat and drink and what you will wear? Do you not know that you have a heavenly Father who will abundantly provide for you, O oh, you of little faith? Over against the myth of scarcity, Jesus says, here's a promise. It's a promise of abundance, of provision. Which will you believe? Are you going to believe the, the myth of scarcity and believe that you never have enough and you have to secure your own life and your own future? Or are you going to believe in that promise of abundance, that you have a father who loves you, who knows your needs, and who will abundantly provide? And if you're like me, you kind of live in the middle there, in between... <laughs> where you, you, you try to read and trust the promises, but you're also like really paying attention to the stock market, worrying about your credit card debt, 
or, or you're really trying to listen to the promises of Jesus, but you also listen real, real closely to Apple when they announce a new product and when Pottery Barn and Nike sort of try to convince you of what you need to make your life better. And Jesus says, look, trust the promise. Because if you don't, if you believe the myth of scarcity over the promise of abundance, you will never be a giver. You'll never be because you'll always be afraid. You'll always be hoarding stuff for yourself. You'll never feel like you have enough security for the future. You will never be free to give. And if you do give it all, it will only be out of the excess, the surplus, because you don't want to touch your real stuff, which is for your own provision. If we want to be people who generously give like Boaz, we have to deeply trust in the promise of provision, that we have a Father who cares for our needs. That's Ruth believed that, Boaz believed that. So that's the first thing, restful trust in God's provision. But the second thing is, is radical generosity at personal cost. I was convicted, first in my lunch with Roth, and then by studying this story, because I have realized that when it comes to giving away money, I am extremely measured. I'm measured. And you, that might not sound bad to you, but I'm beginning to realize that I got some work to do. I find myself asking questions like, do I need to calculate my giving based on my gross income or just my net? <laughs> some of you do this too, I know. Do I need to do this based on before taxes or after taxes? Basically, I'm like, how much can I give without making a whole lot of dent in my own lifestyle? And I'm not proud of this. I really am not. I'm just admitting this to you that this is a struggle that I have as a pastor. And I, I have been deeply convicted because contrast that with the way that we see people giving in this story in radical, sacrificial, over-the-top ways, giving beyond anything that was expected of them, doing it in a in a way that was just flowing out of a spontaneous, generous heart. Look at Boaz. All that was required was to leave some grain at the edges of the field. And you can imagine, he was one of the few landowners who actually probably did this faithfully. And that's all he had to do, to be a righteous man in the community. But instead, he ignored the gleaning laws, and he pushed way past them. And he gave immoderately, radically, and sacrificially, even to the point of personal financial pain. Or look at Ruth. Look at poor Ruth. She gives radically, not out of money, but her very life. There was no expectation that she returned to Naomi with Naomi to Israel. Her sister-in-law did the right sensible thing. Ruth instead does the immoderate thing. She does, she gives without measure. She, she goes far beyond anything that was required of her. She's so committed to Naomi that she sacrifices all she had for Naomi's good. And because of the radical, immoderate, excessive generosity of a poor widow and a wealthy landowner, God does crazy stuff. He breaks open a community. He, he transforms lives. The way is prepared for the Messiah. The earth is redeemed. And so when we put all of this together, what we end up with is what I like to call the economics of hesed, okay? Here's a little economics class, friends, uh, based on hesed. Here, here's how this works. When we are a community and we restfully trust in God's provision, meaning that you and I, no matter how much we make or how much we struggle, we are all deeply trusting that we have a father who knows our needs and he's going to take care of us. When you can deeply believe that, plus you are committed to radical generosity at personal cost to yourself, not just giving out of your surplus, but giving at the very heart, what happens is this crazy stuff, crazy kingdom stuff. 
starts to happen in the world. I know this is not technical economic language, friends. Please don't critique me of that. I'm just saying that this is an equation that we see working out throughout the history of the church in the scripture. Let's take the early church, for example, okay? The early church lived as a tiny minority in a pagan culture. They were tiny, very small. And yet, in the first three centuries of the church, this tiny little community of followers of Jesus literally transformed the Roman world. Why? Do you know why? Generosity. Rodney Stark, historian of Christianity, writes about this in his book, How Christianity Changed Civilization. He says, here we had the pagans who were frugal with their money and promiscuous with their bodies. And suddenly you had this little follow, group of followers of Jesus who were frugal with their bodies, but promiscuous with their money. The world had never seen anything like this. And as a result of their radical generosity at great cost to themselves, giving to their enemies, giving to their neighbors, giving for the common good, the whole Roman world began to change because the economics of said began to be at work. Or take a more modern example. I met a couple a couple of years ago named Dennis and Eileen Backey who work up in D.C. Dennis was the head of a big energy company for many years. He made a lot of money, and he and his wife, Eileen, were committed to tithing, which, if you think about it, when you make a lot of money and you're giving 10% away, that's a lot of money. And they were praised for that. And, and, but yet he and Denise uh, were, he and Eileen were convicted at one point. They almost had a second conversion. They began to realize that God was calling them to give not just 10%, but to give to the point of personal financial cost to themselves. Now, let me just say this as an aside. For many of us, tithing will be radical. For many of us, giving 10% away is going to be costly. And that's a, that's a goal to shoot for. But for many others of us, you can tithe and it, and it won't actually be sacrificial at all. So here's what the backy said. They said, here's our new principle. We're going to keep minimally what is required for our daily cost of living. We're going to give everything else away. Everything. And because of this commitment they had to simplicity of lifestyle and radical generosity, something was founded called the Mustard Seed Foundation. And for the last 15 years, the Mustard Seed Foundation has been committed to giving away money into the world's largest, poorest, and least evangelized urban communities. And because of what they've committed, kids have been rescued from poverty, hundreds of churches have been planted, hundreds of schools in urban areas have been renewed, thousands of people have come to Christ, and the kingdom has advanced in 150 nations. This is all because of the commitment of one single couple. Imagine if that were a community. Imagine if that were a whole group of churches. Imagine what would happen if the economics of Hesed was really put into practice. Crazy kingdom stuff would happen in the world. Look, brothers and sisters, I don't like talking about money. I really don't. No pastors do. But I was convicted this week, and I feel led by the Lord to be challenged myself and to challenge you. Many of you give like me. You are very measured. What would happen if we went beyond moderation and we began to trust deeply in the Father's provision and we began to give like Boaz, beyond the rule, excessively, radically? What would begin to happen? What would we see happen in Richmond? What would we see happen in our church? What would we see happen in the world? We'd see amazing, remarkable stuff as God uses the resources of his people to advance his kingdom in the world. So friends, as we come to this table, I want you to see what we are celebrating here as the greatest act of 
generosity that the world has ever known. Paul says it like this, Jesus Christ, though he was rich, he became poor so that you, through his poverty, might become rich. The rich Christ became poor so that poor sinners might become rich. That's the gospel, friends. And this is the excessive, immoderate, over-the-top, unwise grace of God for us in Jesus. He got nothing, we got everything. He gets our poverty, we get his riches. He gets our rebellion, we get salvation. He gets separation from God, we get forgiveness and everlasting life. This is the excessive generosity of Jesus our Lord. And when you come to this table, I want you to receive these two things from him. First of all, he gives you deep security in the Father's love. You hear the promise that you'll always have enough. You have a father who loves you. Take your hands out of your own pockets and put them in the hands of your father. Trust him that he knows what you need and he will abundantly provide. So receive from Jesus a new security and then receive from him a new heart, a heart of generosity that pours out in response to the generosity of Jesus and his own grace for you. You will find your life filling up with more joy than you can contain. There will be a surplus, friends. Excess. An excess of grace. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful for the overwhelming excess of grace that you have poured into our lives through Jesus. And we pray now as we come to this table that we would receive what you have given to us, the overwhelming grace of Jesus, and that we would respond to that grace by giving you our very lives, everything that we have, that you would use us, you would use our money, you would use our time, you would use our resources, everything that we have to advance your good purposes in the world. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. And as we come to this table expressing the incredible, overwhelming giving of the Lord himself for us, we're led to give thanks. So let's begin our time at the table giving thanks. Lift up your hearts. We lift them up to the Lord. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is right. Holy and merciful God, our Father, you made us in your image and for yourself. You have made this good world for us to tend and to enjoy. God, our Father. You sought your ancient people when they strayed from you. You freed them from the oppressor and brought them home. God, our Father. You have sent your Son to bring us home to you by his incarnation. You have found us. By his death. You have us. By his resurrection. You have us. God our Father. In union with Jesus Christ of Nazareth, the great high priest, and with all who worship you both in heaven and on earth, we offer you our praise, saying, Holy, holy, holy Lord, God of power and might, heaven and earth are full of your glory. Hosanna in the highest. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. Brothers and sisters, on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, saying, this is my body that is broken for you, my people. Do this in remembrance of me. And after supper, he took the cup, and he poured it out, saying, this is my blood that is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. Do this whenever you drink it in remembrance of me. And so now whenever we eat this bread and drink this cup, we are proclaiming the death of our risen Lord until he comes again. 
Let's pray. Holy and merciful God, our Father, send down your Holy Spirit on your bread and wine that they may be for us the body and blood of Christ and send him on your people that we may be the body of Christ reconciled to you and to each other by his blood. By your Holy Spirit, make us, let's say together, one with Christ, one with each other, and one in mission to all the world until Christ shall come in final victory and we feast together at his heavenly banquet. So we cry, Maranatha, even so, come, Lord Jesus, come. Brothers and sisters, you are invited to this table, and this is a table of excessive grace. So who should come? Uh, You should come if you know that you are a sinner, impoverished spiritually, unable to really meet your own needs when it comes to God, Uh, no way to take care of yourself and to get into his family but that Jesus has made himself poor to give you all of his riches and to make you part of the family. So if that's you, if you are a recipient of grace today, or if you want to become that, if you want to come to this table just to receive the grace of Jesus even for the first time, we invite you to come and receive. If you're not a Christian or if you're not ready to receive today for any reason, there's some prayers printed on page 16 that you can use just to reflect on during this time. Uh, The way that we'll do this is there'll be two stations on either side of the table up here, you'll come down down the side aisle when the ushers dismiss your row, and you can just rip a piece of bread from the loaf and dip it in the cup um, that is there for the service. There's also a serving station for you guys up there in the balcony. And then there's also gluten-free wafers if you need that. Uh, and also, I will be coming around if for any reason you cannot come forward, then I will serve you where you are. And those of you in the wiggle room who are watching right now, hello, um, I'll come serve you there as well. As you come, um, if you are a part of this church, I know some of you are visiting, but if you are a part of this church and um, you're ready to make a faith, faith commitment, you can bring your card and you just drop it in these baskets as you come up to the table. Um, and this is, again, just a way that we do this every fall as a collective discipline to offer our whole selves and our financial commitments together to ask God to use it in the next year for his purposes. So let your heart... Uh, Receive the grace of Jesus as you respond back to him in kind. So friends, come to this table. There's a lot of grace here, and it's free. It's free for everything. It's free for your sin. It's free to cover uh, your shame. It's free in the knowledge that you are loved, your child who is protected and secure in the arms of the Father. Come believing that. Our servers.